today from the global lane. Silence no more. Women stepping forward, advancing traditional values in American politics. Conservative women are finding their voice. COVID curve flattened. Should schools and businesses remain closed? At this point, it's it's a disproportionate response. Bull market back. A look at the biggest obstacle to American prosperity. And election year race politics. COVID-19 relief money. It's not for everyone hurting in Portland. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Democrats will often tell you their party is a big tent, inclusive for women and minorities. But pro-life women were denied a prominent role at the recent DNC convention. The media often portrays them and conservative women as outliers, out-of-touch, stay-at-home Barbies, simpletons with old-school ideas. But the truth is the influence of conservative women is growing in American business and politics. Well, joining us is one of them, Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn is author of the new book, The Mind of a Conservative Woman, Seeking the Best for Family and Country. Senator, it's a pleasure to have you with us. So we saw a lot of conservative women speak at the Republican convention. It seems that things are changing in the party. Many more uh, conservative candidates running for office this year. What's happening? What women are seeing is they have a home in the conservative movement. And I really think just as God has used non-traditional people to save his nation, go back and look at the Old Testament, Deborah, Esther, and so many others, that what he does is to open doors of opportunity for conservative women. And I really think conservative women are finding their voice and in their desire to make this nation a better place for everyone, including their children and their husbands and their brothers, everyone, that what they are saying is, you know, I may not be a, a political person. I may not be a Democrat or a Republican, but what I am, I am a citizen who cares deeply about my country, about our freedoms, and I'm willing to begin to speak up. What don't those on the left understand about conservative women? You know, on the left, they get their set of talking points and they stick to them. And you can hear it from newscaster after newscaster. You can see it when they all show up wearing the same color to some event and they repeat the same words over and over and over. But on the conservative side of the aisle, you will see people focus on the individual you will see them focus on principles. So there is a different messaging that is there. And you also talk about the values that you learned from your family and growing up in Laurel. And you write about your time at Mississippi State University, openly debating issues, disagreeing with some. Uh, you still remain civil and friends with people there. How is it that colleges and universities today have gotten away from that? Also in our society as a whole, we've gotten away from it. How has that happened? You know, it is just such a fascinating thing to see because one of the lessons we know from our history is that our nation and our freedoms have been preserved because we protect free speech. We believe in robust, respectful 
political debate. And of course, in college, I learned how to begin to hone those. I had good friends on the other side of the political spectrum from me. And we would have these glorious debates. Even today, I have good friends who are independents and Democrats. And Gary, I will tell you, one of the things I do regularly, because I appreciate robust political debate, I will ask them about an issue, and we'll talk about it. And I will say, tell me what you heard from that. Because one thing we forget is that it is not always what you say, it is what other people hear. I always thought Hubert Humphrey was known as the happy warrior, but you say in your book, that's how you view yourself in the Senate. You have five words that are your mission, faith, family, freedom, hope, and opportunity. And I think many of our viewers would say one reason we're seeing all of this shaking in our society is because many young people, especially those of color, feel hopeless. But faith is one of your five. How important is our Judeo-Christian faith and heritage to what we believe as Americans and to our country's future? How important is it? It is fundamental to what we believe. And of course, I was so blessed to grow up in a Christian home that believed in service to our church and to our community. I walk us back the growth of conservatism. I go back to Jerusalem and the 12 tribes and look at how our principles for the Judeo-Christian ethic, for our federalism principles, how we stand on that. And then we move on to Athens and to London and to Philadelphia and to Washington, D.C., following that pathway that Russell Kirk laid out for us as you look at those five cities and the impact that they have on modern conservatism. I also go back into Burke and some of those writings and William F. Buckley and look at how that helped shape our, our founding and our principles and our underpinnings and where we come from in the conservative movement. Okay, Senator Marsha Blackburn, your new book is The Mind of a Conservative Woman, Seeking the Best for Family and Country. Thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. On the home front, many schools are reopening around the country despite the COVID-19 pandemic. Yet other schools remain closed, opting for online distance learning. And in many states, businesses are still unable to operate at full capacity. Are these continued lockdowns necessary? Well, joining us is author and researcher Michael Beatrice. His latest book is COVID-19, Lockdowns on Trial. Okay, Michael, COVID-19 lockdowns, they've cost the world trillions of dollars. And here in the United States, many schools remain closed. So based on your research, are those lockdowns necessary at this point? No, at this point, it's, it's a disproportionate response. I, I think when we first locked down, there was an expectation that we might be at, uh, at risk of up to that 2.2 million deaths and, and an overflow of capacity in ICUs of a tenfold uh, shortfall in a worst case and a threefold shortfall best case. That did not prove to be the case even by April. And so what we've done is sort of move the goalposts to something that's really not even practical at this point for us to um, use as a, as a measuring stick for us to reopen. And, and yet 
we're, we're barely at an epidemic level now. If you look at actual COVID-19 deaths, not, not counting the backdated ones that get included in daily totals, we're probably at about 5% of total deaths per day. That's barely even an epidemic level. So it's not that COVID-19 isn't real, it's what is the proportionate response to the schools closing, businesses, deaths of despair, 40 million people unemployed. It's, it's, it's a disproportionate response at this stage. Well, let, let's explore that a little bit. Now, I know when the lockdowns first began, just about everything shut down at the beginning of spring, I think it was, in mid-March. We were told the lockdowns would last only several weeks until we flattened that curve. So what happened? Why have these shutdowns continued more than five months now? Boy, if you could answer that. So one of the things is polling. That's That was the connection that I drew. So you've got a lot of media attention that's hyped up on cases, uh, which at this point we're, we're at around 6 million. But based on random samplings that have happened, we probably have 75 to 100 million people in America that have been infected. So you've got this uh, sort of panic in the, in the populace, and I see it. I see it with all over the place, not just Texas, but when I tra I've traveled this summer. And, and so the polling says we're not ready, we should be locked down, there's great fear. And I think that the politicians are buckling a little bit to, to those polls, but um, none of it makes sense. The other challenge that I really see getting through this is gonna be around liability. I think that universities, K through uh, 12 schools, there's a bit of fear around what happens if somebody gets sick, even if there's an outlier case. And so until those institutions and, and even businesses too get indemnified, I think it's gonna be a long, long rest of 2020. Here in the United States, we now have more than 180,000. Just how accurate are those numbers? It seems like the death rate is declining drastically. You'd mentioned uh, down to 5%. It was 84%, I guess, on March 13th, uh, but the risk now 5%. So some people would argue that's because of the lockdowns. So that's a great question, and I'm so glad you asked. So you, 180,000, we're actually up higher than that in all-cause mortality during this time. So the CDC has conceded uh, that, that deaths are overstated. Based on calculations I run and things that I piece together from the CDC, it appears that we're probably at about 100,000 actual COVID-19 caused deaths. So we're up about almost 200,000 in all cause. So the difference in that 100,000 of extra deaths you, you really classify those as lockdown deaths. How about masks? There's a lawsuit in Illinois right now because some schools there have reopened without requiring students to wear masks. Joe Biden wants to uh, have everyone wear masks. He wants to make that mandatory. So what have you found in your research about the effectiveness of masks in preventing the spread of COVID-19? Prior to COVID-19, there really was no medical data that supported or journal analysis that, su that supported um, face coverings or, or non-N95 respirator masks as effective at blocking airborne particles, uh, aerosols, uh, pathogens for a virus. So what you saw coming into in February, our Surgeon General said, don't, don't do masks, it's not necessary. Dr. Fauci was um, sort of, hey, if you want to, go ahead, but it's not necessary. And then we sort of shifted into that. And to give you a couple data points, an N95 is, is uh, 97% effective at blocking pathogens. A surgical mask tied, not loop, tied is 68%. If it's got loops, it's only 38. And typical face coverings that you see people wearing is only effective in the teens. 
So it might be better than nothing, but it certainly is not effective. And, and the validation of that is if you look at Hawaii has been very, very disciplined in mandating that. And um, months after that, they had, uh, they've had sort of a, a, a per capita explosion of cases. You've seen this in Japan, in the Philippines, Los Angeles started right around June 1st having a mask order. And in July, they ended up having a big surge in cases. And so that it's okay to wear them. I think there's a psychological benefit to it, but as far as mandating it and expecting that to be a uh, slowdown or blockage of it is, it, it's, it, it just hasn't, the data hasn't supported it. Okay, we'll see where all of this is heading. Michael Beatrice, researcher and author of the book, COVID-19 Lockdowns on Trial, You've given us a lot of food for thought. Thank you for your time and insights today. Thank you so much. Up and down and now up again. Has the bull market returned? And if so, what could that mean for you? Joining us to set it straight is Dan Celia, national radio and TV host of Financial Issues. Dan, it's good to have you with us again. So in the midst of a global pandemic, a bull market, is it here to stay for a while? What's happening? Well, I think it's uh, probably going to be a little bit more volatile, but I'll say this much. The bull market is probably here through the election and through the years to come, assuming that the administration stays intact. And if that happens, then the bull, the bull run in the bull market is probably here for, I would submit, uh, a fairly long time, a number of years. So, yeah, I think it's here uh, to stay. The markets just are so poised and ready to continue this run. And there's so much penned-up anticipation waiting for a treatment, waiting for a vaccine, and waiting to flip the switch back all the way on the economy. Uh, and, and it's just, they're just waiting. So I think when the economy comes back, Gary, what's gonna happen is we're gonna see things start to balance out. And the run-up that we've had will probably slow down a little bit to give a chance for the actual economy to catch up with the valuation of the stocks. Uh, stimulus needed? Another one? I don't. I don't believe so, uh, Gary. That's just my opinion. I don't think it's needed. I didn't think it was needed when they were first talking about it a few weeks ago. Uh, my my position has been, you know, wait and see. Let's let's wait it out. Uh, I I think it's needed from a political perspective, but I don't think it's needed, and I don't think we ought to do it. And there's a number of members in the Senate. Uh, Republicans that are very fiscally conservative, and they were all for aid to America, as I was. I was all for it as well. We needed to do it. But I think uh, right now, I don't think it's needed like some would think it is. Yes. Do we need to keep doing it? I know the federal debt measured yeah. against the size of the U.S. economy is the largest since World War II. Now, how concerned should we be about the gross domestic product, the GDP to debt ratio? Is it growing? Yeah, it's growing dramatically uh, right now. Now, that'll come a little bit into balance into third quarter when we get uh, GDP third quarter. But at the same time, it's not going to be in balance enough for what we have added to it. I mean, this is uh, nothing that we anticipated having for the next four years, and we're already there. 
So uh, spending is going to continue. We've got a oh, we've got a um, uh, infrastructure project that has to happen, that needs to happen, and is going to happen. Uh, so we're talking about uh, another trillion, two trillion, probably uh, dollars. It's going to keep going, and I think that uh, we need to take some real positive steps. And I am praying and hoping that the administration, after the reelection, they really take some positive steps to begin to slow down the growth of that GDP. It's really hard to dig out of that debt, isn't it? How do we ever get out of it? We're, we're not going to dig out of it, uh, Gary, by way of growth in the economy. It's not going to happen. We've passed that point. What we have to have is very, very serious cuts in the size of our government. And that's the only way that we dig out of that. Growth in the economy, at the very same time, we are cutting the budgets of every single department, maybe except for the exception of the Defense Department, and every department has to have cuts. We've got to have more efficiencies, more effectiveness. We've got to have uh, ferret out the duplicity from one department to the next. We have so much work that we've got to do to the federal budget. And if it's not done, then it's just going to, you know, we have no shot of ever seeing any kind of real stability in the economy. We can't just grow our way out of it now. That stopped about 2013. We now have to cut the government. And my hope is election year is over, uh, four years, only four years. And this will be a chance for this president to create a legacy uh, for America by, by uh, developing some real strong cuts. I think it can be done. Okay. But we got to have the will to do it. And things looking up, I guess, as we go into the election. Uh, for sure. Yeah. Dan Celia, we always appreciate you, brother. Thank you. Financial Issues National Radio and TV host. We appreciate your insights, Dan. Great to be with you, Gary. God bless. Once again, people on the left are creating division in our society based on skin color, using the tactics of Nazi fascists or the Chinese Communist Party. They ridicule, even assault people who disagree with them or get in their way. This elderly businessman was beaten unconscious when he tried to prevent his store from being burned and looted in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And this couple just wanted to enjoy a night out. Activists interrupted their dining experience demanding that they chant black power. When they refused, the couple were called racists. All they wanted to do was get something to eat. But some victims of this cancel culture are fighting back. Earlier this year, Covington, Kentucky teen Nick Sandman settled a $250 million defamation lawsuit with CNN. Members of the media targeted Sandman for wearing a Make America Great Again cap, while protester Nathan Phillips banged a drum in his face. Remember that? They depicted Sandman as an aggressive, intolerant, pro-life, pro-Trump smirking teen who mistreated a Native American. Sandman spoke about his experience during the second night of the RNC convention. My life changed forever in that one moment. The full war machine of the mainstream media revved up into attack mode. And do you know why? Because the truth was not important. Advancing their anti-Christian, anti-conservative, anti-Donald Trump narrative was all that mattered. 
and if advancing their narrative ruined the reputation and future of a teenager from Covington, Kentucky, well, so be it. That would teach him not to wear a mega hat. I learned what was happening to me had a name. It was called being canceled. Folks, people are only going to take so much of this cancel culture. Leftists mistakenly think people of color are going to join them, but not true. Polls show the vast majority are against the violence, the intimidation, the defunding of police. They just want peaceful neighborhoods and productive lives. They don't support racism against any American. And in Portland, Oregon, more craziness from Mayor Ted Wheeler. You remember him standing with violent, oh, oh sorry, peaceful protesters outside the federal building. Well, Wheeler denounces racism, but he himself is advocating racist city policy. He tweeted this week that the city is now accepting Oregon CARES Fund applications. Wheeler says, quote, black families and business owners experiencing housing insecurity, emergency needs, or loss in revenue due to COVID-19 are eligible for cash grants. Yes, it's good that people are getting help, but Mr. Mayor, why are you singling out black Americans? There are many people of other colors in Portland, Hispanic, Asians, whites, who have been hard hit by this pandemic. Shouldn't they also receive help? If they are, then why are you notifying only blacks? More election year pandering. The Portland mayor should be an advocate for all people of Portland, regardless of their skin color. If preference is given to one group of people based on their skin color, that's a violation of federal and state law. It's unfair and unjust. Folks, justice should be colorblind. Let's fight for a colorblind and just society. And let's listen to one another, respectfully sharing our views. Remember, Jesus said in the book of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 34, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So let's approach our neighbors with kind and clean hearts. Let's treat one another with decency. And let's not forget our country's pledge, one nation under God, with liberty and justice for all. That is for people of all faiths, all colors, one people, one United States of America. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Parler, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.